Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, Weeds fans, this is uh, Matthew Iglesias. It's it's Friday afternoon, and as you probably know, on, on Friday afternoon, Donald Trump and congressional Democrats reached a deal to reopen the government and fund it through February 15th. That is uh, good news for the American people. It is bad news for the Weeds podcast because we recorded Friday morning, and in every podcaster's nightmare, we talked about the shutdown, not knowing that the shutdown would be on the verge of ending by the time the podcast was over. So if you're listening, Keep in mind, we're not idiots. We just didn't know. I think if you look at the discussion, you're going to see that we get into the longer term issue here, which is still on the table. We only have funding through February 15th. We talk a lot about the fundamental dynamics in the White House and in the United States Congress. I think it all holds up. I think it's a pretty good analysis. But, you know, there's a first part where we say we don't know how long this is going to go on for. And in fact, we now do know how long it's going to go on for. So sorry, those are the breaks in the podcasting game. Uh, you can't win them all. But, you know, we do our best and uh, hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with Ezra Klein and Jane Koston. Um, we are in the day 35 now of the the government shutdown. It is, I think, the official second missed paycheck by federal workers. And I think that, you know, if you have been working without pay for over a month now, it may seem like this just goes on and on and on and on with no end. But we've actually seen this week, I think, the beginnings of uh, the Republican Party's political position on this crumbling. And that that one sign of that was in the State of the Union standoff uh, where, you know, Pelosi and Trump had these letters going back and forth. Trump sort of conceded that, no, he's he's not going to give the State of the Union can, until the shutdown. Can I ask over. you about that, Matt? Yeah. Why do you think he did that? Because that actually surprised me. It, it surprised you that that he backed down? Surprised me that he backed down, uh, given what his public position had been, given the talk that maybe just go give a State of the Union at the wall. Like, for him to back down to a powerful man to say, like, okay, then I guess I'm not giving the State of the Union anymore until you tell me I can seemed very out of character for him. It, it was out of character, and it doesn't make narrow tactical sense. And the reason I think it was significant is that, to me, that was the beginning of an implicit admission by the White House that they are looking for an exit strategy strategy here, right? That like they did not want to further escalate the confrontation with Congress. And that I think you started to see in some of the, you know, gossipy White House 
reporting that came out today, other signs of this, that like what they are now looking for is a kind of a face-saving exit and that the decision to not further escalate the State of the Union standoff is part of that. They said, we will give a State of the Union and we're going to give the State of the Union when the shutdown is over, which taken literally was what Pelosi's letter had said in the first place. But that's like an acknowledgement that they want this to end and that they don't think the way that they are going to end it is by ratcheting up the pressure on Democrats that like they're going to find some kind of pathway out. Then we had votes in the Senate, right, where, where Mitch McConnell had had this idea that he was going to raise pressure on House Democrats by holding Senate a Senate vote on the Republican plan. And he knew it wasn't going to pass, but he was hoping that he would get some Democratic defectors for his plan. But to get agreement to hold the vote on the Republican plan, he also had to hold a vote on House Democrats' plan. And what happened in this was neither bill got 60 votes, but the Democratic bill actually got more votes than the Republican bill, even though there's 53 Republican senators and only 47 Democratic senators. So that, again, was a sign, right? Like there is a significantly larger number of Republican senators who are saying we need to bail on this than there are. Democratic senators. And if I'm remembering the numbers right, that was six Republicans who crossed over to vote for the Democratic bill and one Democrat, Joe Manchin, who crossed over to vote for the Republican bill. Right, exactly. So it's there's a number of Republicans who are feeling political heat, uh, plus some people with safe seats. Mitt Romney was one of the the party switchers. Romney voted for both bills. Um, But, you know, that's like a signal, right, that like people in the Republican Party want to get out of this. Right, because right. you're starting to hear from people that they're hearing from constituents, because I think that there was kind of this myth building early in the shutdown. Yeah, And you even saw Trump himself say it, like, don't people know that most of these federal employees are Democrats, which we can't really know the answer to that question unless you really take, like, donations to political campaigns as a direct sign of one's political standing. But you kind of saw this language of, like, people don't actually care about government employees, but they really want as a wall. Well, all of the polling has shown that people are way more concerned about a government shutdown than they have been about the construction of a border wall. And you're seeing FBI agents going without pay. You're seeing Coast Guard people going without pay. And I think the basic kind of language around the shutdown is changing in a way that's not very helpful for Republicans right now. So I want to pose the question then of how this actually does end, because if you if you pulled me back three weeks, I would say, well, Trump, we're we're clearly seeing that the way out for Trump is that he's going to declare a state of national emergency and like say he could just build his wall his own way. And that'll get tied up in the courts, but allow him to like step down in a face saving way and like reopen the government. And that'll be that. But right now, like he didn't do that. I don't fully understand why he didn't do that, given the things he had been saying about doing that. But he didn't do that. I can see this ending through disaster. A plane crashes, you know, like God forbid, or, um, you know, something else happens within the shutdown federal government that ratchets up pressure on reopening the federal government so much that Republicans can't bear it any longer. But if we're just talking about a negotiated end to the thing, they're not in. As far as I can tell, nothing has actually changed in the Trump administration's position. Lindsey Graham was floating the idea of a three-week reopening while they continue to negotiate. And Trump said only if there's a prorated down payment on the wall, to which Nancy Pelosi said, as you might expect, go to hell. And, and so, like, I like as a Republican position cracks, like, do do either of you, if you had to like write now, like pre-write what the story is going to be when the shutdown is broken, like what does that story read like? 
I still think the surrender plus emergency declaration seems like the most likely outcome. Right. There seems to be some internal Republican politics around that. I will say one other possible way out, right, with this this prorated type language is that a nuance here is that the appropriation bill that Trump is not signing does include, I think it's 1.3 or maybe $1.6 billion in border security funding. That was negotiated between Democrats and Republicans months ago, and it does not include the wall. So none of that money can be used for a wall. Uh, But some of that money can be used for bollard-type pedestrian fencing. And then Trump separately over the course of the shutdown has redefined the wall to include the bollards. Can you just say what bollards are? The steel slats. Right. Ah, Trump's Trump steel slats are what's described in the legislative language as the pedestrian bollard fence. So there is some money in the appropriation Trump is refusing to take for the thing that Trump says he wants. So conceivably, you can take the thing that Pelosi is already offering him, kind of take it out and then put it back in. And then that's your prorated ball down payment. Just like a pure fudge of the issue, to the extent that Trump is really just looking for some kind of way to say he won something here. Now, the inclination for Democrats at this point is going to be to say, look, Trump put the country through this really bad situation because he is crazy. And we cannot allow him to save face because we don't want to do this again and again and again. A subject of internal disagreement among Democrats will be if Trump is willing to basically surrender, but he needs to save a little face, do you give him something to save face so that we can get out of this? Or do you say like, no, like we really need like knife to the jugular, devastating win here because Trump is so nutty. Then on the Republican side, right, conservatives did a lot of pushback to the emergency declaration thing. And it seems to have given the Trump administration a lot of pause that, you know, conservatives worry, I think not that it will fail, but they worry that Trump could somehow actually get this done with emergency powers, which would open the door to Democrats doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, this is, Jane, I think you you follow this world more closely, but but that seemed to me to be the problem, that there was a backlash on the right. Right. And it was more, more about the fact that, like, when there is a Democratic president, if they made a emergency declaration because we absolutely have to deal with the issue of climate change right this very second, I think that the idea that letting Trump do this is essentially letting every future president do this. But it's also interesting, I, something I do want to mention, is that with the GOP bill that they put forward that failed, I think that the internal text of that bill was particularly interesting because it actually contained a lot of specifics about Central American minor and asylum restrictions that Trump never brought up. And so I think that you saw even from some Republicans this idea that like the GOP should not be attempting to reform asylum law in an emergency or kind of doing a Stephen Miller special to include things about restrictions on how TPS works or how kind of these internal machinations of immigration law work in this bill that's supposed to be trying to get the government to some stage of openness again. And this kind of thing really does, I don't exactly want to say backfire because who knows what what the Trump administration actually wants at this point. But but it does have consequences. I mean, right now, what you would expect to be seeing is somebody like Doug Jones, right, who won the special um, uh, election um, for the seat in Alabama. Like, Doug Jones would be under a lot of pressure. He's up for re-election in 2020, I believe. And he, like, has a very conservative state. 
But he ended up voting and he when he had initially heard Donald Trump talking about that, you know, quote unquote compromise bill, he had been pretty favorably disposed on it. But then he voted against it on the grounds that these asylum changes were snuck into the legislation. And at a number of points here, the Trump administration has not been running anything that looks to me like a legislative strategy, right? From the beginning, they didn't want the wall enough to get anything for it. And then going forward, they have not actually been crafting bills that they can use to split the Democratic caucus. And that was another example of that. They had something that if you just like took the bill with its quite narrow DACA relief or dreamer relief, I should say, um, and, and the other pieces of it, you could it, it was not a good bill and it would not have gotten 60 Democratic votes, but it maybe could have split Democrats more and put more pressure on Schumer. But whatever the internal dynamics of the Trump administration are, they put into that bill language that could not pass under any circumstances, but also made it a less effective political messaging or coalitional pressure document. And I would genuinely like to know what happened there. Like, like who is in charge that that occurred because the point of that bill was not to pass. The point of that bill was to get Doug Jones to vote for it. Right. And they did something completely optionally, like an optional option that allowed Doug Jones to not vote for it. And just like, why? Like, why did that happen? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a fascinating question, right? I mean, the the a lot of profiles got written of Stephen Miller at a certain point, sort of taking the the view that, like, here's this remarkable rise of a young man who used to write long emails on behalf of Jeff Sessions to reporters about why various immigration compromises were actually bad for conservatives. And, like, now he's, like, running the whole government. But, like, he just doesn't seem up to it. I don't know. You know, you had a piece, Ezra, yesterday on the, on the site about um, Francis Lee's work on, like— like, how do things happen in Congress? And the whole strategy around this wall is just like the opposite of that. There's a certain thing where if you actually want to get something done in Congress as opposed to sabotaging other people's efforts, you have to first like decide what it is you're trying to accomplish, right? And then you have to like work at it, right? And if what you're trying to accomplish is a messaging bill, then you have to keep poison pills out. Because you need to achieve your messaging goals. If what you want to achieve is a wall, then you have to be like very pragmatic about the wall. You have to give other people good stuff so, so you get it done. You have to not turn it into the most divisive, most polarizing symbol in American politics. If you just want a symbolic showdown, then like that's great. But then you don't want to put it into must-pass legislation in which you wind up looking like an idiot because the airplanes don't take off, right? And throughout this whole thing, it, there's no way to tell from the outside what it is they are actually trying to achieve here because the strategy is not not well-designed to any particular goal. So there's another political scientist here whose work I think is relevant, which is Liliana Mason at University of Maryland. And she does a lot of work on uh, political identity and the way when political identities come into collision with each other, very quickly, the actual nature of the policy win will fade in relevance. And, and as she puts it, like the winning becomes the thing. Donald Trump has always been like a like an almost human manifestation of that idea. He really does just talk about politics in terms of winning and losing. And I think one of the one of the strange problems of this is that this has continuously been framed as about the wall when for Donald Trump it is clearly about the winning. 
Right. Donald Trump has never done any of the things he would need to do to get the wall. Like he's like going back to when Republicans controlled all of Congress. Like he did not make the concessions. He did not prioritize it in that way. And in part, that seems to be because Donald Trump's administration itself doesn't really care about the wall. Even the administration hardline was on immigration. Like the wall is a symbol to them. It's not how you actually stop immigration. They cared about cutting legal rates and changing asylum rules and and the whole basket of things that, that have been discussed on the weeds before. But so at some point, Donald Trump seems to have woken up during this most recent appropriations fight and began looking at tweets from Ann Coulter and realized that he wasn't winning. He was being perceived as losing because he wasn't getting this wall. Right. And I, I, something I'd like to add in is that uh, there was there's an argument on the right, and you saw that from Ann Coulter, that like, well, Barack Obama was tough on these issues and was willing to shut down the government to get Obamacare passed. Why can't Trump be as strong as Obama? Definitely not how that went, just for the record. Indeed. Be- because the amazing thing about this is that Donald Trump, to, to go back to, to this piece I wrote yesterday, Republicans shut down the government over Obamacare. And and Obama was willing to like let them bear the cost of it until they had to reopen it. But the amazing thing about what Donald Trump has done is that there is often an upside for the minority to engage in conflict brinksmanship and to, to show Washington isn't working and the president is failing and we're paralyzed and it's conflict. And like maybe voters should just make a change. What is crazy about Donald Trump in this respect is that he ran what is usually the out of power party's political strategy on himself. So he's given Democrats all of the benefits of huge levels of conflict and government dysfunction at a time when Donald Trump is the one in charge of the government, at least putatively. Um, But he has done that without making them bear the cost of that obstruction or those decisions. So it's like, when Ted Cruz shut down the government and Republicans all followed him into it, like people didn't like Obama, but they like were really angry at Republicans for doing that. And so it like ended up hurting the Republicans much worse. Donald Trump has managed to both like do the thing and take the blame for it. He's like completely localized, like who gets blamed for it in himself. It's a terrible strategy. But the reason he can't get out of it is that as far as I can understand, basically the, the Trump administration, we speak of it as a unitary thing, but it very much isn't. And it includes Donald Trump, who wants to be seen as winning. And a certain number of like people who care about the issue of immigration, who want to get policy things done. And between those two things, there is no bill. Like there are ways Donald Trump could look to be like winning, which is, say, the emergency declaration. But then like his immigration people, they know they're not going to get anything out of that. So they don't want to do that. And they may even lose things in the future because, you know, Democrats will use emergency um, declarations in their own way. Um, On the other side, Donald Trump might be able to get more of what he actually in theory wants, which is border security. There has been a lot of openness among Democrats to have like a smart wall as opposed to a physical wall and other kinds of big border security packages. And maybe this will be the end. Maybe Donald Trump will like declare victory on it, but it doesn't look like it because Donald Trump doesn't want border security. He doesn't even really want the wall. He just wants to be seen as winning a fight that he has no leverage to win. And like, there's no answer to that riddle. It's it's interesting also because you're seeing a linguistic shift within the administration, not from Trump himself, which is one of those moments in which I and others have pointed out that there's Donald Trump and then there's the Trump administration. And occasionally those two have markedly little to do with one another. Kellyanne Conway had a conversation with uh, CNN's Abby Phillips earlier this week in which she kept asking, why do you keep using the word wall? You should stop using the word wall. That's not what we're talking about. We can call it anything we want. And then at that same time, Trump is tweeting, build a wall and crime will fall. And it's interesting how by attempting to get away from the word wall, 
Some Republicans are arguing that, like, well, you know, if Democrats were willing to give money for border fencing when we weren't calling it a wall, if Democrats were willing to vote for the Secure Fencing Act of 2006, if Democrats have been willing to pay for border security before, well, we'll just stop saying wall and then Democrats should come on board. But I feel as if that that is an argument that lacks any and all context about the fact that, you know, we've been having this wall discussion for nearly four years now, essentially. And it's it's interesting how, though, that is really I think that was the moment to me in which I recognize like Republicans are recognizing it. This this isn't going particularly well. And especially because even the National Emergency Declaration, I think conservatives agree that like that would essentially just mean that like Trump can declare some sort of victory, but that it would all wind up in court. And during the first four years of Trump's presidency, there would be no, quote unquote, wall constructed. OK, let's let's take our first break. And then I want to I want to float a crazy idea. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds. Okay, so it seems to me that if Republican immigration hawks really want to get what they want out of this, I mean, not out of the shutdown, they, they should just end the shutdown. But like if they want to achieve their policy goals, what they should take a serious look at is there's this concept that exists in the White House that's called going big and it involves the DACA and the DREAM Act. But like they should go really big, right? And look and say that, look, for Democrats, 
There has been for a long time the concept of a comprehensive immigration reform. And for Democrats, the centerpiece of that comprehensive immigration reform is a path to citizenship for about 11 million long-settled, undocumented residents of the United States who have not committed serious crimes, who've been here for over 10 years, who are integrated into American communities, um, and you know who would, would pay back taxes, would get permanent status, would be able to apply for, for citizenship like anybody else. And Democrats have traditionally tried to make that deal with pro-immigration Republicans for the understandable reason that they're the ones who are interested in it. And those were guys like John McCain, like Jeff Flake, who were tied into the business community and who what they normally wanted is the Republican side of it was things like guest worker programs um, and new visa categories, stuff like that. It keeps almost coming together in, in 2013 and again in, in 2007, and then it gets scuttled ultimately by immigration hawks. But the hawks themselves could come to the table and they could say, look, what we really want is A – a giant steel fence because that will prove some kind of point to Donald Trump. B, changes to how asylum law works because we think there's huge loopholes here that are creating, you know, runaway, whatever, whatever. And whatever else is on this like insane picayune list that, that Stephen Miller keeps putting forward. And then put it to Democrats to like, look, like how much do you care about immigration lawyers concerns about asylum, blah, 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 versus the concrete interests of the 11 million undocumented residents, their families, their communities. And I think that could be a very tempting offer to Democrats, right? If it's really true that these things that Stephen Miller thinks are huge problems are huge problems, the way to address it is to make a really big offer on the other side. I don't think that's going to happen. Like, there's just not at all the the mind space in either party to get like really, really, really big deals done here. But it's true that like on immigration, mostly the two groups are like talking at cross purposes about totally different things. And then it's collided in this symbolism around the wall, which like shows like, are we a mean country or are we a welcoming country or are we a tough country or are we a, a soft and naive country? What liberals really, really, really want is to deliver a win to this sort of shadow constituency of undocumented people who've been living here for a long time and who often have U.S. citizen children, friends, family, colleagues, things like that. And what Republicans really want is a stop to the ongoing future flow of people from Latin America. And like, you can do both of those things. I agree with you to some degree on the policy. You could certainly at least have a conversation about both of those things. But I, I, I think this gets to a place where you really get into the nitty gritty of how the legislative dynamics are particularly breaking down in the Trump administration, but are also breaking down more generally. Donald Trump runs on immigration. He makes himself a symbol of anti-immigration hardlinerism, right? The, the thing that Donald Trump represents above all else is not just the wall, but it's an attitudinal approach to immigrants, right? It's like Donald Trump's immigration views are not powered 
by a particular set of views on like income levels. And I don't even really believe they're powered by these views on crime, because if they were, then somebody would like sit Donald Trump down and say, actually, immigrants, including undocumented immigrants, commit fewer crimes than natural born citizens. Uh, and he'd be like, oh, OK, so I guess it's not a big deal. Like it's powered <laughs> by something a lot of people feel, which is that immigrants are bad. They are changing the nature of the country and that I like the country the way it was. I don't want the country to have more immigrants in it. And Donald Trump is a symbol of this very, very powerful tendency, not only in American life, but in, in other countries and to some degree in all countries. And the thing then, and particularly around how he acts with it, is that you can't compromise with that symbol. You can't give a win to that symbol. I'm not saying one shouldn't necessarily. Sure. I'm saying that the political dynamics are, the, are that one can't. So then you could do something else, right? And this is fundamentally what Barack Obama sort of tried to encourage in 2013. So you know, after winning the 2012 election and after Republicans took, at least in the immediate aftermath, the lesson, the problem is they're completely losing the Hispanic electorate. There was the emergence of this gang of eight in the Senate. And Obama like could have done a number of things here. He could have called a joint session of Congress to like pound the table and say that they like had to pass a gang of eights bill, or he could have like, you know, gone on a national tour, or he could have made a bunch of demands to the gang of eight. They were pretty hardline, but he didn't. Like what he did was he created a space purposefully where if this bill passed, one of the people who would get the most credit was Marco Rubio, who at that time was believed to be the one of the most potent threats to Democrats holding the White House in 2016. And like, nevertheless, like Obama like backed out because if he had gotten himself up in front, there would have been no chance of a compromise because the Republicans could not in the Senate compromise with Obama and make Obama look better and make Democrats look better. But they potentially could do something that would make Marco Rubio look good and John McCain look good and Lindsey Graham look good and, and, and so on and so forth. The issue here is that both at the Trump administration level and also as far as I can tell at the House and Senate Republican level, these are not coalitional negotiators who are also the immigration hardliners. The immigration hardliners seem to be, I don't want to call them all cranks. Um, like I think Tom Cotton sometimes works well with his colleagues. And and it, it's not that like nobody there can craft a deal, but these are not deal makers. If you like came up with a list of the people in Congress who are like good at like building these coalitions and like trying to get somewhere with them, it doesn't include any of these people. And so uh, I think one reason you just don't see any of the activity that you're talking about, Matt, is that all of the people who seem to me to lead this anti-immigration tendency in elected American politics are highly symbolic politicians as opposed to highly coalitional or um, legislative politicians. Like you have like a lot of people who are good at pounding the table and not a lot of people who are good at building a working group. And I think that that comes out here. Like they're very concerned about purity and they're not all that concerned about getting anything done. And so they don't get anything done. I think that there, there's also it's interesting that you go back to 2013 because how Gang of Eight was perceived on the right was that this kind of transactional politics is in some ways like a moral failure, that purity is good, even if nothing actually happens. At least you kind of have the moral and political purity to to go back on. And it's interesting because Stephen Miller got his start essentially via Jeff Sessions yelling about Gang of Eight. When you talk about like the GOP 2012 autopsy document about reaching out to Hispanics, there, there was a response within a large swath of the right, like, no, what we need to do is double down more. And 
And I think that the double downers are not politically effective, but political effectiveness is not really the point. The idea that like, ah, we can create a deal that will make life better for dreamers or for specific groups of undocumented immigrants or immigrants in general is not at all the point. The point of crossing the aisle, not what the double downers want. When the fact that Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh have in some ways the ear of the president make it very difficult for him to even there was that moment in early December in which he was kind of like, eh, you know, wall funding isn't as important. He got decimated within specific swath of right wing media because conversation isn't the point. Actual political wheeling and dealing is not the point, which I think is in, in some ways why this has been such a difficult shutdown for Trump to leverage, because Nancy Pelosi is very good at politics. And I think that that's a specific challenge when Donald Trump has ne the idea of being good at politics is not why he was elected president. It was because he was supposed to be outside of politics. It, only he could fix the issues that come with wheeling and dealing. But the issue is that you have to be good at wheeling and dealing to actually do anything that even the double downers would want. I do think the, the autopsy report is actually, and the sort of debate about that is is very relevant here, right? Because if you if you look at that 2012 autopsy and the analysis that Romney's core problem was, was weakness with Latinos, you can see where that comes out of, which is that of the states that Obama won in 2012, his three weakest wins were Florida, Virginia, and Colorado. And those are all states with relatively large Latino populations. In the case of Florida and Colorado, Virginia, it's modest, but but quite rapidly growing. Um, and so those are all states where I think you can really say, look, if Romney had done as well as Bush with Latinos, he would have won those states. So and like those were those were the closest states. So that's what we're focusing on. Right. A different analysis and, frankly, a more correct analysis would be to say, look, even if Romney had won Florida and Virginia and Colorado, he still would have lost the election. Yeah, but think of think of how much more of a moral victory. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the, the goal is not to win states. It's, it's to win the election. Right. And the pivotal state was Pennsylvania. If you go through how much better would they have had to have done to win, the political center of gravity was in Pennsylvania and Michigan. And that continued to be the case in 2016, right? And Pennsylvania and Michigan are states that have very low Latino populations, that have large white working class populations, and where Democrats had traditionally done well because the white working class population in those states is relatively secular and had not been super into anti-gay politics, anti-abortion politics. Not like necessarily incredibly woke on those issues, but not into that, right? And so then when Republicans shift their political center of gravity to anti-immigrant themes, they wind up doing much better in those white working class northern Midwestern states. And even though the specific political dynamics of this shutdown are not going well at all for Trump, it is still true that positioning Democrats as the party of multiculturalism and cosmopolitanism and positioning Republicans as the party of Americanism and nativism is a smart strategy for those Midwestern states, right? Like that macro analysis is right. And so it's hard to get Republicans off anti-immigrant politics because they, they Trump has picked a bad battle here, but like it's a good war, right? And then particularly after Republicans have already lost the House, the center of gravity in Congress becomes the Senate GOP caucus. Anti-immigrant politics is great in the Senate map where like these like totally empty states that have six white people, you know, have like a million senators and then like 
California has two. And then Texas, which, you know, is a Republican state. But like if there were a state in which the ongoing nativist turn were to flip it blue, like it's going to be Texas, which is going to be 80 bajillion people and two senators. Right. So the more presidential politics focuses on the Great Lakes and the more congressional Republicans just think about the Senate map, the more sense it makes to be the anti-immigration party. And that makes any kind of deal making just like per se unattractive, because if you have a deal, then you're not having a fight. And if you think it's a winning fight, then you want to not make deals. Or if you think the fight itself is the win. Yes. If you love the fight. I think there are two interesting things that that touches on it. And one goes back to something Jane was saying, that when Donald Trump ran on the right, he was like the purity candidate. But but I want to note something that was always interesting about Donald Trump, like which was that he managed to both be the candidate who would like brook no shit and like say what he really thought and like not give into the media, and also the candidate swearing that he would be the greatest deal maker the world had ever seen and that America needed like not one of these weak like like pathetic people, but like the candidate who had written the art of the deal, like me, Donald Trump, like the great deal maker, and so. This, I think, was also important with those voters you're talking about, Matt, that there are obviously some voters for whom, like, the issue and the only issue is keeping America, like, as white and native-born as possible. And, like, they're out there. And there are some voters who just, like, are uncomfortable with changing demographics. And, and like, they're out there, too. And I think that's actually a big group. And it's an important group in American politics. But there are a lot of voters who, like, have some sympathy with this. But they also, like, they're not so political. Like they would like things to work. They would like politics to not be a circus. And they're very disillusioned with politicians. And they're very disillusioned with politicians because, like, like go back a couple of years into the Obama era, which now looks like this oasis of calm and and like and almost like peace. But it wasn't. It had shutdowns and debt ceiling crises and constant partisanship and like fights over, you know, Trayvon Martin. And like there was like all this feeling of tumult. And here came Donald Trump with his sort of authoritarian personality, swearing that he could make these great deals because look at how much money he made in business. And, you know, it's it's cliche to say it now, but it is worth remembering that The Apprentice was very important to the Donald Trump candidacy. The And the view of himself that Donald Trump had persuaded America of on The Apprentice wasn't like a nutcase nativist, but was like a great in-command businessman. And so Donald Trump like managed to put together this set of things. There's actually quite unusual to put together in American life. But it just turned out that he wasn't all of those things. He wasn't a good deal maker. He probably wasn't a very good businessman. He is a kind of nutty nativist. He is a hardliner. He doesn't compromise at all. And so what you see now, like to, to your point, Matt, there, there's something to the idea that Donald Trump has picked a bad battle here and possibly a, a good war. But there's also something to the fact that yes, whether Donald Trump can run the government is for 2020 part of the war. And the fact that his like approval ratings have been going steadily down is a real signal that that mattered to his support, right? There could be this like view in liberal circles, like nothing Donald Trump does hurts him. And I think that you've said <laughs> yeah. often, and I've said as well, that no, actually a lot that's happened hurts him. That's why he's always unpopular, but this is hurting him even more. Um, and if Donald Trump cleaves immigration hardliner from great dealmaker who knows how to run things, that is not a winning presidential campaign for somebody who already almost lost. But I do want to go here. I think we should take a break because I do want to talk about Donald Trump's foils and particularly Nancy Pelosi, who I think has run a stunningly effective counter strategy. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. 
But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So I think to understand this whole, like, what is going on here, that there are two big moments worth looking at that the Democratic leaders forced into being. One was, um, it's now probably a month, month and some change ago, uh, but during one of those initial meetings with Donald Trump, and I, I remember watching this, it was like this crazy thing with Chuck Schumer just again and again and again baiting Donald Trump until Donald Trump finally just like 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 Hulk like ripped off the rhetorical shirt and was like, I would be proud to shut down the government. Like I would completely own a shutdown, a shutdown government over border security and I'd be proud of it. It was like a really dumb West Wing scene where Right. Where, where, where it's like he just said it and it's all exposed. Right. Like is a very dumb West Wing scene. The thing that never happens. So Chuck Schumer, I mean, if you go back and you read the transcript, it's not like Donald Trump invited them in and then did that. Like Donald Trump, like he had them up there. It wasn't meant to be open press. Um, it was open press. And then Schumer and, and certainly to some degree Pelosi. But but Schumer, I think, really took the lead on this, like is clearly trying to get Donald Trump to say if we shut down the government, I own it. And then Donald Trump says that. And that sets it a very important context. But by the time Donald Trump does shut down the government, um, after, after a little while, uh, Nancy Pelosi becomes speaker. And Nancy Pelosi has been like an unbelievably effective foil to Donald Trump. And I will like zoom in on one moment in particular, which is she ran a very high risk strategy, in my view, in sending that letter to postpone the State of the Union. Like, it was not clear to me that that would be a winning strategy. I thought that was like had a very good chance of, of backfiring that, you know, people said that's an American tradition and we need to be talking and, you know, whatever else it might be. And then you had like Donald Trump coming back and saying, that, I, you know, I'm, I'm just going to be showing up whatever. And like the Secret Service says they can do it fine. And it completely worked. Like she has stared down Trump completely unblinkingly and he is blinking. And there is something interesting in the way that the, the, the two Democrats have been tag teaming this in the way that, you know, Chuck Schumer tries to draw Trump out and negotiate with Republicans. And Nancy Pelosi is just 
been this quite unyielding force who's willing to, to tweak Trump and just utterly unafraid of him in a way that very few of the people he's dealt with have appeared to be. I've been very impressed by the by the Democratic leadership team over the course of this shutdown so far. I think it's, it's useful also to note that they're compatriots, in a sense, within the Trump administration have done an extraordinarily poor job of messaging this, where one Trump uh, administration official kind of described federal workers coming into work without getting paid as volunteering because they so support the president. And Wilbur Ross, uh, who's Commerce Secretary, said he doesn't understand why federal workers are using uh, food banks when they should just be taking out loans. And he described, you know, federal workers not having enough cash as a liquidity crisis, <laughs> which is... um. To be fair, it is a liquidity crisis. It's, it's a rich guy <laughs> thinking, yes. Yeah. Isn't that cra- That was the craziest comment to me. No, the craziest comment was when Trump, defending Ross, said that he thought Ross misspoke. But what he really meant was that you could go down to the grocery store and they would know you're good for it. And they just wouldn't make you yeah. pay for several days. Like he's like shopping in the 1920s or something. I don't I don't know. What, he's not even that. He's old, but he, like he's not I mean, that old. This, like, this does lead to the ongoing question of what Trump thinks a average American does in just an average day. But I think, you know, you also saw this from uh, Laura Trump talking about how, you know, this is a sacrifice for federal employees, but their grandchildren and children will be so grateful. And it's interesting from someone, you know, I write about obviously conservatives and conservatism. And it's interesting how the administration that was that pitched itself the most to being speaking to everyday, quote unquote, normal Americans. And when I think people connected to this administration or people who are supportive of this administration use the term normal, they mean like white working class Americans living in Rust Belt states. But it's interesting to see this administration be so bad at messaging to that same group of people while sounding like Marie Antoinette. That is absolutely true. But also, I mean, back to Pelosi, right? I mean, when people were talking about Nancy Pelosi's future in leadership and she was getting criticized, I think that the criticisms of her were mostly focused on a thing that is true, which is that she is not an incredibly dynamic public communicator. Right. Like her speeches are not like going into the classics and she's not the A plus number one person to go on a like two people yell at each other television show. And she's polarizing. Right. That was the other piece of that. Right. But what her supporters were saying the whole time was that she's really good at the job of being a legislative caucus leader. And like that's what you've seen across this because it's a very difficult type situation, right, where one thing that happened here is that Colin Peterson, who is a veteran House Democrat, he holds down the Trumpiest House district of any district that that Democrats represent. He has kind of broken with the party and, you know, said on local talk radio, like, yeah, like give Trump his wall, right? And that's absolutely the right politics for Peterson. And Peterson has been around so long that, like, there's no way leadership could get him to not do that anyway. But the way Pelosi managed the House is that it wasn't a huge deal when Peterson did that. It wasn't like, aha, the first cracks in the Democratic armor, right? And there was no stampede. Like Jared Golden, who holds down a fairly Trumpy district in northern Maine that's like kind of similar to Peterson's northern Minnesota district, but it's just won his election. 
He didn't like hop on that bandwagon, right? There was no stampede. And not only was there no stampede, everybody knew there was no stampede, right? There was those like multiple layers of confidence that the caucus was sticking together, that there was going to be an exception to the rule that the caucus was sticking together, but that it wasn't even big news because of course this one guy did, right? And like that stuff is really, really hard. That's the kind of thing that a new person would really struggle with. And to have the depth of relationships with people, with understanding of what's important and what's not important, and like what matters about these different things. A a risky strategy like that State of the Union letter, to pull it off, you need your people to not act like it's a risky strategy. Yes. Right? Like if every member of Congress had right away like been on the phone with their favorite reporter back in the district being like, I don't know about this. Like, it wouldn't have worked. And I'm sure lots of members of the House had some doubts about that strategy, but they did not express those doubts in public. And because they didn't express the doubts in public, the strategy worked, right? And, like, that's what she's been able to pull off, whereas Republicans here, it's not just in their overt message on television, but it's like you just look at them. Right. Like you just cover Capitol Hill. It is obvious and it has been obvious from day one that they are not comfortable with this strategy, that they don't really believe that their leaders have a winning hand here. And they just like they look itchy. They act itchy. They're breaking on weird votes. There was a story in the Post about Senate Republicans yelling at each other. And that just builds confidence over time that like. We don't know what the end game is here, but like clearly it involves Republicans caving. And like that was the thing people were saying when people were dumping on Pelosi was like when you actually have a speaker and you want the speaker to do the job well, she's going to do it. Well, also, uh, two other things I think are notable here. One is that on day one of this, the way day one went is that Donald Trump betrayed Republicans by abandoning a deal they had negotiated and he had said he would sign on to. So they really began from a place of fracture. I just want to note, it's not a great president. But to, to just like give Pelosi a little bit more, more praise on this, the other thing that I think has been important here, I, I don't know if you guys find this um, when you do your reporting, but I, I find in Capitol Hill, there's a real distinction between different views of Donald Trump. And there's one view of Donald Trump, which is like, that Donald Trump doesn't know very much, but he's really strong. That he's like a he's like a strong person. You know, he's you know he does things that the conventional wisdom you know won't back. And he and a, a number of Democrats have this kind of like what I would call like the grudging respect view of Donald Trump. That like he did something unimaginably difficult to, to them certainly, which is to win that election coming out of nowhere. And that the guy has some kind of like political master genius that is not fully apparent at all times. But you got to give it its due, and you got to like give him a wide birth. Like Donald Trump is sort of like a, like a, he's like it's like he's like a wild animal or something. You know, you want to be careful. And there are others, and I would say Nancy Pelosi has always been a leading person in this caucus who say, no, Donald Trump is weak. He's like a weak, prideful, vain man. And if you can just poke him enough, he will overreact. And if you're not afraid of his overreaction, he will expend himself and make a mistake. Right. And I do think something important here is that Pelosi has four years, but now has had the power to, to execute. She has Donald Trump's measure. She believes he is weak in these ways and he is showing himself to be weak in these ways. Like going back weeks and weeks now, in every meeting with him, Pelosi really jabs at him. In a way that Chuck Schumer, for instance, more or less doesn't. I mean, Schumer like will like re- put out the press release that Donald Trump is bad, but like Pelosi will come in and be like, "Oh yeah, we don't all get money from our daddies." 
Like, right. Pelosi, I, I love that comment. Pelosi talks down to him. She insults him. He, she does actually something Harry Reid used to sometimes do with um with with Republican politicians. And the view is that, like, you don't have to be afraid of Donald Trump. You want to provoke him into like these displays of braggadocio and like digging in. Um, And, and that was like the joint strategy they played out in that meeting where they got Donald Trump to say that he wanted to own a shutdown. But it is then a strategy that Pelosi's been doubling down on and doubling down on and doubling down on. And again, there is risk in that strategy to be out there during a shutdown needling the president could make you look if you did it too much or if he responded the right way it could make you look like the aggressor it could begin to turn public perception of like who is causing the shuts the shutdown after all but in part because donald trump's position here is so ridiculous in part because like democrats just keep being willing to vote to reopen the government but in part because she's correct about how he's going to react repeatedly up to and including that he's going to back down on the state of the union. Like Nancy Pelosi has had his measure and in that way has been like very effective at the public facing game, not just the insider game on this. And it's been interesting also that, like I said earlier, is that Nancy Pelosi knows how to politics. And I mean that in the sense of like, yeah, she, you know, she was she's able to hold Democrats together on issues that even when she knows that it's going to come across poorly in, I don't know, uh, right leaning outlets like townhall.com or something like that, because she recognizes that for most people following this, they're going to care way more about the fact that like members of the Coast Guard aren't getting paid. FBI agents aren't getting paid. People are you know, you, food bank lines are going to be more kind of impactful than conversations about specific bills that did or didn't get passed. And it's interesting also that every time we have a presidential election, we have this entire conversation about people want to get away from politics or like this, you know, it's time to get away from politics as usual. And it's both Democrats and Republicans. But there's a reason why politicians are good at politics. And we're seeing it right now with Nancy Pelosi. The other thing that's just sort of nutty here is that for the first time, Trump has really made himself Republicans like floor general in a legislative battle. That was not how the health care or tax bills worked, right? Because Trump has no idea what he's doing uh, in this field, right? Like even in the the theory of Trump that's like he has political skills that you don't understand, like he doesn't have those political skills. And I think there was actually something to the idea that like when they were doing the tax bill, the idea was going to be that like Paul Ryan was going to mostly craft what the policy was and Mitch McConnell was going to mostly craft like what were the limits to that policy that you needed to do to enact a law and Donald Trump was going to mostly talk about how tax cuts are awesome. That like as a division of labor sort of made sense. But we now have like Jared Kushner is the guy who's supposed to work out the legislative deal making. Right. To be fair, he did bring peace to the Middle East. And he ended the opiate crisis. But I mean, but I mean in, in all seriousness, like the I don't know that anyone believes this, but the conceit of the operation is that Kushner's work on the criminal justice reform bill, which just consisted of getting some Republicans to just agree to give in to the Democratic position like shows that he can mastermind this. And like, I don't know why anybody would think that. I don't believe that any of the congressional Republicans who claim to believe that actually do believe it. But it's like nobody wants to tell Trump now, like you need to take a 
back seat here, right? And like Mitch McConnell, who knows what he's doing, like negotiated a deal with Democrats that would have allowed Donald Trump to claim that he was beginning construction on a border wall. That key objective was already achieved by the most knowledgeable Republican legislative leader. And then Trump blew the deal up because he didn't like how Laura Ingraham was covering it. And like that's just nutty. You you can't win with those kind of tactics. Like, and it doesn't even begin to make sense. Like, if you tried to pitch to, you know, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, like any president in history, okay, my strategic goal in this legislative dynamic is to get a bill that no media personalities on my side will complain about. Like, how are you going to do that? Uh, I mean, I was just saying that it, it's a particular challenge in which Trump relies so much on the feedback from the people he watches on television that when you are attempting to craft policy or craft legislation that will make a specific group of people who work for a specific television network happy or talk radio happy, that that's going to be challenged when you then need to send Jared Kushner to try and parse that out to Congress. But it's like, oh, we can't we can't do the ACA because Chris Hayes will complain that there was no public option. Like that's no, you <laughs> that can't been do amazing. that. Like I do remember when Chris Hayes personally scuttled Obamacare. <laughs> but but to to go to go back to this for a minute, um, I, I was seeing I was reading some New York Times coverage of the shutdown and of the kind of Pelosi Trump fight, and I I saw like the most interesting um locution in it, which was they they said in a couple it seemed to me in a couple different articles if I'm remembering this correctly they they would talk about the Pelosi Trump confrontation and then they would write something along the lines or exactly Trump facing an equally powerful like female like political leader and i don't remember in past periods like the speaker of the house being declared equally powerful to the president but like trump has made himself look a lot smaller and nancy pelosi who i would say that the kind of like like the democratic sentiment when nancy pelosi regained the speakership you know you remember there was this whole deal about her being a transitional speaker and stepping down in a couple of years there's this whole like like a caretaker speaker like okay like she she's got it for now because maybe there wasn't a really good alternative but like democrats aren't fully on board with this like she won and she like you know you you give her the credit um but it's not like the party was not fully like thrilled about the Pelosi speakership. And you know that joke that's always out there, like, this is the day Donald Trump became president? But, like, this has been the fight where Nancy Pelosi really became Speaker of the yes. House again. Because, like, that that sentiment is gone. Like, as far as I can tell, like, there's not a Democrat in the House out there. Or, and for the most part, but most just, I think, rank of all Democrats, who's not thrilled Nancy Pelosi is, like, their general on this fight. And I just, I don't say that just to, to praise Pelosi. I say it because I think it's an important dynamic going forward. It's building confidence in Pelosi from her members. It is establishing a relationship between Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump. It is establishing a way that relationship is covered. It, like, this template coming as soon as it did after the 2018 election is establishing, um, a lot of the framework for how politics is going to work in basically like the next year, which is like the one year we have until like a year from now, we're in primaries. Right. Which is a crazy thing to think about, too. And if you're a conservative, you have to be excited that the power of the executive is being diminished. I don't I don't think if you're a conservative, you're super excited about this in general. But I mean, the power of the executive isn't being diminished. Like Trump is just poor manager of the executive branch, right? Like it's he's not losing formal authorities. I mean, it's true that in some theoretical sense, at least some conservatives favor like congressionally driven 
government, but like this is not actually, actually what what they want. And it's true, right? There's a remarkable transformation from the Nancy Pelosi of 40 days ago, who was like really sweating committee assignments because she had to really delicately maintain the support of her caucus, which was full of grumbly people who had kind of reluctantly gone along with it to now when like there is no more grumbling. There is no more. I mean, members of Congress will always find a new day to grumble, right? Like it it will happen. But like for now, like the skeptics have been completely silenced. Uh, the, The last phase of the committee assignments went forward without any controversy. It's not that the last assignments were less contentious. It's that nobody was complaining about Nancy Pelosi anymore. So when she doled them out, like, it just was what it was. And, and every you know, people defer to her now again, and they have confidence that, like, she has a plan and that people who were complaining about her, you know, like, look dumb, right? And that's a real transformation in the situation and a real question for Trump, right? There has always been – there was throughout Trump's first two years one view – of Trump from from outsiders was, wow, Trump is showing like extraordinary strength as a president, right? That like, unlike this kind of weak, hesitant Obama, Trump is just doing this, he's doing that, he's getting away with everything, like lol, nothing matters. Like this is the template for maybe more aggressive, progressive governance of the future. And then another view was like, no, Trump is actually very weak. And then what he's showing is that if you have a Congress behind you and you are willing to just defer to them on everything, that you can create the like appearance of party unity and getting things done. And what we're seeing now that Trump is trying to push the Trump agenda rather than the Paul Ryan agenda and that the House is not under his control, that like he's really quite weak. Like he is not marshalling the conservative movement's forces in a reasonable way. He doesn't have like a whole of government effort behind immigration that makes sense or that's even legible to people, right? He's just kind of flailing. And now that he doesn't have the total lack of accountability that congressional Republicans gave him, he's facing all kinds of investigations and things like that. Now that he's not just rubber stamping a kind of assembly line agenda, like he he's looking very weak because he doesn't have he doesn't have any skills. Right. And it's interesting also, um, if you go back to the halcyon days of 2015, when Trump launched his campaign, you know, I keep going back to his campaign website and their description of how the wall would be paid for through uh, remittances. And it's so interesting to have gotten to this point at which the shutdown itself is a failure of politics, but also it's a, a real failure of this idea that like, Something that you built your entire campaign on, you know, Trump's stuck now. He's stuck because he relies so much on specific, you know, kind of right-leaning commentators in the media. And he is stuck because at the base of it, he cannot deliver on the thing he kept bringing up over and over and over again, a thing that was more a, you know, a speechifying element than a real idea that he really wanted to get done. So, Jane, are you saying you don't think Mexico is going to pay for the wall? I have really troubling news for you, Matt, about whether or not Mexico is going to pay for this wall. It's not it's not going to happen. I don't think huh? it is. I'm so sorry. You know, I mean, it's like it's easy to joke about the whole Mexico thing. But like it, it's true, right, that like Trump lied a lot more than a traditional candidate. And at one point, people kind of hoped it's like, ah, people will catch on that he's a huge liar and there'll be a huge backlash against him. And they sort of wasn't right. But you now see that like one reason to not lie to everybody all the time about stuff is that you might wind up in a situation where you're kind of trapped by your own 
nonsense, right? And like Trump has created a universe where to Trump supporters, there is a huge immigration crisis in America. And that solving the immigration crisis involves a border wall. And also that the border wall can be achieved with no trade-offs, right? And so it'll be easy. And also where Donald Trump is a master deal maker. And like that stuff isn't true, right? And like the problem is that the ways out of this involve a kind of collapse of that narrative about Trump and about what's going on. That like either he's incredibly ineffective or the immigration problem isn't actually that big a deal or the wall is not a useful solution to it, right? Like there has to be some way out of this because Trump can't just come out this summer and be like, wow, <laughs> the country is a disaster, right? Like he's the president. But you know what is true? What is true? That you should join the Weeds Facebook group. Oh, that is true. That is true. On the Weeds Facebook group, you will find um, sustenance and truth that, that you need to, to get you out of this and possibly tips on which airports to avoid in the midst of uh, an ongoing uh, breakdown of the air traffic control system. I also want to make a plug. Um, Ezra Klein's show, last two episodes, I think, will be of particular Weeds listener interest. Um, one was with Francis Lee, whose work we've mentioned a couple times in this podcast. And I think is the political scientist most relevant for understanding this period of divided governments. Like I, I wrote this piece yesterday about how um, if there's one political scientist Donald Trump should read, it's Lee. But like if there's one you should hear, it may be her too. And she's on the show. And then also Robert Sapolsky, who's a neuroscientist at Stanford. But we had a really, really, uh, I think, amazing conversation about the way in which poverty um, creates like high levels of toxic stress in the body that then lead to more poverty because of what they do to function and learning and, and all kinds of other things. And I think it's like you hear us talk on the show sometimes about like the fight over work requirements and making a lot of these programs harder to access. And I think this show like like Sapolsky's work really kind of shows like if it was in fact your goal to help people get out of poverty, making their lives harder is not a good thing to do. But I think both of those will be um, worthwhile interviews for Weeds listeners. Awesome. So thanks for joining us on a Friday. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks as always to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and the Weeds will return on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.